podcast today by Kevin Day, stand-up comedian, man who has appeared on Match of the Day 2, Price of Football podcast with Ke- uh, Kieran Maguire as well, um, appeared on our screens for many years. Kevin, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, mate. I'm, t- I'm trying to get my eyeliner right so you can't see the double chin. <laughs> first things first, Kevin, um, your love um, of Crystal Palace, you're a big Palace fan. Where yeah. did your passion for the club start? How, how, when was your first game and what's your opinion of the team now? Uh, my passion started, and this is an odd story, um, at the age of five when I went to primary school, uh, I was sat next to a kid uh, who was so much more tall than me than I thought I was in the wrong class. So I started crying uh, and he put his arm around me. And, uh, and that was that was five decades ago, basically. And we're, we're still best mates. It's the last time he ever put his arm around me. But he was a he was a Palace fan and his, his family were all big Palace fans. And it it, it came from there, really. And it's um, I'm not sure about my first game. There's some dispute about my first. I, the, the first game I actually definitely remember was against Stoke in 1973 but my dad said he took me as a tiny kid to watch Palace Man United in 1969 but I'm, I'm not entirely sure but the, I, officially it was against Stoke in 1973 and we won 3-2 and I, I just remember how green the grass looked it's, it was so long ago that we still had a, a black and white telly so going to the ground for the first time and just seeing this beautiful green grass pitch and was I was just hooked and I, I also my other big memory is the swearing I just loved the swearing I thought that was the most exciting thing a young man could hear, basically. So, uh, so yeah, so I've been a Palace fan ever since and still game with Steve and still game with you know his son and my son and our other mates have got grandchildren as well. So there's where there, there was 10 of us initially and now there's about 40 of us. And I, 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 I can't tell you how much I miss it. It's not just the football I miss, Callum. It's just that what my wife describes as talking the same bollocks to the same people in the same corner of the same pub. <laughs> For two hours before every game, it's the game itself is not as important as that camaraderie, and I, I really miss it. And it's it's a shame because just as this all stopped, we were we'd won three games on the row, which is why I'm a big fan of this theory that the championship, the Premier League, should be decided on current form. And we were looking like a half useful team, and, and the last two seasons under Roy Hodgson, this has been the time of year when we've sort of made ourselves safe and we've started to play a bit more expansive football. So. You know, it's not the, the most important reason for missing football, but I, oh God, I miss it, mate. I really do. I'm the exact same. It's, yeah. as you say, it's tradition on a Saturday. What's your match day routine? You mentioned going to the same pub with your, the same friends. When does yeah. it all start for you? It starts, I, I like to be in there by midday. Uh, I, I think if I'm in there any earlier than midday, that's a bit, a bit too much. But, you know, one minute after midday is fine. <laughs> uh, and we all, it, it's, I'd, I'm fascinated by the, an anthropologist would have a field day with it because it doesn't matter if, if, if we were late, if my group of mates were a bit late, no one would sit at our usual table, which is outside in the, in the sort of courtyard. And it's the same with every other group. You know that various people will be sitting there. So no one takes the seats. It's no matter how packed it gets, you just, you just leave that bit alone. And then it's, it's, it's a tiny pub. It's a really tiny pub. It only makes money on match days, but I, I can't imagine being anywhere else. I, I just adore it in there. And on, on boxing days in particular, even at my age, I get I get very emotional because it's just you I, you can't find it. If you're an away fan, you, you wouldn't know it was there. So there's if there's an away fan there, it'll be somebody who's with a, a Palace friend. So it's just a pure Palace pub. It's 
it's full of old photographs and posters and old palace scarves and signed programs and palace memorabilia andy johnson's shirt that he scored a hat trick there's all sorts of stuff and it's just when you're in there on boxing day and everyone's there and it's you've people that you've grown up with and you've you were there with their kids and their grandkids and it's covered in red and blue i i get very emotional as a lot of my identity comes from from football callum because i i, I grew up and i still live in a, an area of south london that's there's nothing really there you can't really define it it's it's it it just it's a place where sort of three boroughs of london sort of meet you, even to people in london you have to say well, it's a bit like stretch and a bit like two so Palace has given me my identity. I, one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is is that people go, oh, yeah, he's the Palace fan. I love that. I, I, I love that I've come to represent Palace fans and that Palace fans know that I will always defend them. I, I'm actually getting quite emotional talking about it now, to be honest, Callum. In terms of Palace, it's clear from speaking to you already how much the club means to you. Who was yeah. your first real pa- uh, Palace hero? That's a good question. And you know what? It's, it's a good question because it kind of changes from... From day to day, I, I think probably Don Rogers. Probably, I, I, it's sort of giving away how old I am now. But Don Rogers, uh, you can YouTube him. There's a, he scored um, a couple of brilliant goals that were on match of the day, and and he played when we beat Man United five 0 which is the biggest result of our history for years. And he was, we got him from Swindon, and I, I met him recently. He used to have a jet black hair and a jet black moustache. And I met him recently and he's now got snow white hair and a snow white moustache. But he's still got the most brilliant, comical West Country accent to the extent that he starts talking and you almost start laughing because especially being a, you know, a superior Londoner. But, but he was a real old-fashioned winger. Palace have always had a tradition of wingers. You know, later on, we had Peter Taylor, Vince Lane, and more recently, Yannick Balassi, Wilf Zahar, of course. But Don Rogers was a proper old throwback winger it would just get the ball and dribble past people or knock it past them and put a cross in. And it's, 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 it's all to do with nostalgia. In my mind, he, he represents that sort of lost period. When, when you first discover football as a kid, when you're 11 or 12, when you're properly into it, when you, you're getting all the magazines and reading all the... That's, that, that's when it sort of means the most to you, I think. And he, he represents that a bit. But I love I loved John Jackson, who was our goalkeeper as well, who was unfortunate enough to be... An England goalkeeper when Gordon Banks uh, was around and then when Ray Clements and Peter Shilton were around. I loved him. I loved John Saul, who's our captain. But Don Rogers was my first my first real idol, definitely. In terms of Palace through the years, the 80s and the early 90s were really memorable times for the club. What was it like watching those years as a fan? Well, do you know, the odd thing is, because you know, in the, in the late 70s, when we were we were due to become the team of the eighties, we got promoted to Division One in nineteen seventy nine. Uh, I was there in front of they, the official crowd was fifty one thousand, but I reckon it was closer to sixty one thousand. It was an astonishing night. We had a team. Eight of the starting eleven were under the age of twenty three, and eight of them were from South London. So that was a team we were all really close to, and they were they were going to become the team of the eighties. And and for a brief spell in nineteen eighty, we we were top of Division One. And they were a brilliant team to watch, a fantastic team to watch, but we just couldn't sustain it. They were too young, they were too frail. So then later on, the team of the 80s and then the, the team like in 89 and, and 90, we, when we finished third in Division One, the old Division One, in 1990, 91, which people don't remember, we were third team. We finished third in the, in the top division and a lot of 
football fans have forgotten that. We didn't get into Europe, unfortunately, because Liverpool were allowed back in that season because I think UEFA would rather have Liverpool back in than Palace. But we were third. We, that was the most successful team we'd ever had. But they were really hard work to watch. They were, we had Wright and Bright up front, Jeff Thomas. They were, but they were functional rather than, than flair. If you see what I mean. so, that, so that young team 10 years earlier was a joy to watch. They were brilliant, but they, they couldn't be successful. Whereas a team that was successful was... They were a nasty bastard. I mean, they were, they were, again, a lot of South London players, but we had people like Andy Gray, Jeff Thomas, Mark Bright, Ian Wright. They wouldn't back down from the fight. They were, we were quite a physical team, not that popular. But, so we didn't enjoy watching the actual football, but what an exciting time it was to be, to be a Palace fan. It was, it was a brilliant time to be a Palace fan. And Ian Wright, I, I still have never quite forgiven him for, for leaving <laughs> Palace for Arsenal. He still, every time I see him, he... he he says, what will it make you do to stop, stop you calling me Judas? And it's like, well, I'll get a time machine and, and don't kiss the Arsenal badge when you <laughs> score against us, which is what he did, unfortunately. But, you know, no, no one resented it. He came to us from a, from a team called Greenwich Borough. And the thing with Ian Wright is just like Jamie Vardy, he does things or did things that he wasn't meant to do, but he'd never had it coached out of him. So like, when you see Jamie Vardy when he first came through at Leicester, he came into football late through non-league teams like Stockbridge Steels and then Halifax. But So no one had ever told him that he wasn't supposed to get the ball down and try and chip the goalkeeper from 40 yards. No one ever told him that he wasn't supposed to take the ball into the corner flag then dribble it around uh, three players and, and score goals. And that was what Ian Wright was like. He was just an exciting, instinctive, instinctive player who scored goals that no one else would have scored. So that was... They were, they were great times. They were good times. In terms of the Ian Wright era when he was at Palace, the FA Cup final, just how heartbreaking was that ultimately in the end? Um, if I thought for one moment that we were going to win it, I probably would have been heartbroken. Um, the semi-final, even now, I think was the most amazing football game of my life when it wasn't that long after Liverpool had beaten us 9-0 at Anfield. And it's never good being beaten 9-0. doesn't matter who's beaten. doesn't matter if it's one of the best teams in the world beating you 9-0. 9-0 is, is a joke of the scoreline. So when we came to play them in the semi-final, no one gave us a hope. And to be fair, we didn't give ourselves a hope anyway. And then, well, as an omen beforehand, they had... Um, so you're young, so you won't remember times when pre-match entertainment was dismal. <laughs> and in, seriously, the FA Cup semi-final, the FA Cup semi-final, one of the biggest games in the calendar, and the pre-match entertainment was an RAF dog display team, basically. So they, <laughs> they had two two RAF Alsatians, and it's like an assault, it's like an assault course on the pitch. So there's like hoops, ladders, beams, and the. the the first dog went on and the first dog had a red jacket and the RAF guy said over the, the, the tannoy, OK, well, Liverpool fans to get behind uh, this dog. He's the Liverpool dog. And the Liverpool dog just broke the world. He just went up the ladder through the hoops. And then the dog, the, the Palace house, he said, this is the, the, the dog we want Palace fans to get behind. So he jumped up on the beam, fell off, literally fell <laughs> off. So he thought that's not a good omen. But then oh, and in, in, the, in the first half, they battered us. I mean, that was a brilliant, brilliant Liverpool team. And they battered us in the first half. We were, we were so lucky to get off the pitch at 1-0. At and then at half-time, of course, famously, Steve Coppell said to, said to the team in the dressing room, look, just keep this tight, see if we can nick a goal. And then John, Bed John Pemberton, our full-back from the kick-off, 
went mad, went down the touchline, it ricocheted around, and within 15 seconds we were we were at one all, and that's probably the that goal was just amazing. But then we ended up the, when the fourth goal went in, we were so exhausted. Alan Pardew scored it from the corner. We were almost too exhausted to 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 cheer. But I I still think we were all desperate for the final whistle. I still think I was the first person to know we were, we were just. I just had this angle with the referee and I just saw him lift the whistle to his lips. And well, I've said this to my wife and I've said this to my son, that, that split second when I knew we were going to win that FA Cup semi-final was arguably the, the best second of my life. It was amazing. So, the, the, But the downside of it was that the, the, the Cup final itself was, I wouldn't say it was an anti-climax, but even when we were, we were winning... Mark Hughes always scored against Palace. We knew that something. The, the, the replay was a terrible anticlimax. We we turned up at the replay in a yellow and black kit, which we'd never worn, and that kind of set the mood. And we played very badly. So yeah, it was disappointing, but somehow the semi final was was more exciting. Having the semi final was brilliant, I, and I I could live with losing the final because that semi final will always be my best memory. When you watch your team in an FA Cup final and you, you go to Wembley, you have that day, what's it like? It just it must be an incredible moment. Yeah, who do you support, Callum, by the way? Um, it's a complex story, basically. Oh, okay. I grew up a Celtic fan um, because my dad was in the, the blue half up here. Right. Um, so he wouldn't take me to Celtic games and I wouldn't be allowed to go to Rangers games with him. So although I grew up a Celtic fan, well, I've got a really close affiliation with my hometown club, Greenock Morton, because oh, that yeah. was the club my dad and I were able to go to with the rivalry aside. Yeah, I've got um, a mate of mine, Scottish comedian called Parrot, who's a, a Morton fan. So because I've got, I've got family in Glasgow who are all Celtic fans. So I, I, you know, one of the reasons I'm heartbroken about the Edinburgh Festival being called off is that I always get to see a game when I'm up there. But your question about the FA Cup final, it's I, I sometimes feel sorry for. I've got a lot of mates. There's a lot of comedians who support Arsenal, Spurs, Man United, Chelsea, and they get so blasé about going to Wembley, especially when they play the semi-finals there. We've we've been in two FA Cup finals, and I've been to them both, and because they're so unusual for us. I mean, we've been to Wembley and other other tournaments and semi-final but it's so unusual for us to get to FA Cup finals that it's just so exciting for us because it's not we know that it's probably be 20 years before we get to the next one so the build-up to it is it's just amazing and just that excitement with mates when you you're talking about getting tickets how do we get tickets together and then what we're going to do the night before so the night before the last cup final in 2016 I do a, a Palace uh, podcast called uh, five-year plan which is very popular. We get a lot of a lot of listeners, and and we had a uh, a tweet uh, from an Australian Palace fan who said he was coming over for the cup final, but all his family were were no longer in South London, and most of his friends had moved away. And he said, uh, are, "Are any of you going to be in a pub beforehand on Friday night that I could?" We we thought about it. we thought there must be a lot of Palace fans like that. So we said on the podcast the week before, on the night before, we, we we're going to go to a pub. We went to one in central London called the George, and we said, if 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 you want to join us, if you're an exiled Palace fan with nothing to do, and 200 Palace fans came to that pub the night before, and all of them, you know, had reasons to be there. They're, they're from all over the world. They're guys from Texas, from a guy who worked on a, a research base in Antarctica, guys from South America, and it was just the most. It's just the most amazing feeling of, again, that camaraderie, that shared 
thing. And listening to these people talk about the reasons they supported Palace, because these are like, you know, there's a, a guy from Hungary and a guy from Finland, and it's like, why do you support Palace? And hearing what they and it was it was just fantastic. And of course, the day itself, when you, you know, because people know me as a Palace fan, and you just spend hours. I was doing loads of media stuff, which is exciting in itself, and then just. Everywhere, we, everywhere you went, there were Palace fans coming up to shake hands, have a hug, have a photograph. It's just, it's just so exciting, and it's. I, I think it must be awful to be an Arsenal fan. You just go, oh god, we've got to go to Wembley again. Oh, Man City fan. Oh god, another semi-final. Is it? It's, and that's why. That's why I love watching things like the 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 EFL, the Checker Trade Trophy, or whatever they call it. When, when teams like Northampton and and Doncaster and Mansfield get to Wembley, and you see them take it over. When you know suddenly a team that gets maybe seven thousand people at home are taking thirty thousand people to a game at Wembley, and that's I find that quite emotional as well. Absolutely, it's something in terms of football that I would totally agree with. I love seeing clubs who don't normally get to finals get to finals. It's mm. exciting, and the one thing that I've got for me as well, just talk to you about it, just gets coming right into my head in terms of one thing that really frustrates me these days, Kevin. I don't know about yourself, is the FA Cup in the sense that. There's just this attitude that oh, it doesn't matter, money's king, just put out a reserve team. I, th- I find that quite sad because I grew up, even though I'm, I'm, I'm 24, even when I grew up in the early 2000s, there was still there was still a, a buzz about it for me, seeing like, Liverpool go to Yeovil or whatever on the BBC yeah. or ITV. I, I, still, I still half-heartedly talk about the FA Cup being the greatest cup competition in the world, but as each season goes by, I can't really justify that and I'm much much older than you but when we were growing up the FA Cup final was normally the only game that was live on TV and when I was growing up when I was a kid every team had a chance to win the FA Cup you know it wasn't unusual for a team from outside the first division to win the FA Cup and the FA the FA have killed their own tournament now we used to be so excited on, on the third round of the FA Cup, every game would kick off. And I know I sound like an old man here, but every game would kick off at three o'clock. And now it takes place over four days. It, it, for teams in the, in the Premier League, they're much more concerned about avoiding relegation or winning the Champions League. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. It's on the BBC because it's the only football they can really afford and no one really cares. You know, you, you suddenly you're watching, you know, I don't know, Newport play... Leicester at five o'clock on a Sunday evening. It's like 20 years ago, you'd have been so excited, but now it's just like, oh God, there's another game on. It's just four days of them. It's like, now obviously I could, but it's it's a tournament that has been, it's been tarnished. There's no doubt it's been tarnished. And the, the, the Premier League and Sky and BT, it's, it's impossible to compete with the Premier League. And, and that, that goes for the Championship and League One and League Two as well. It's so difficult. Getting in the Premier League is all that matters now for most football clubs staying in the Premier League is all that matters. And now, like you say, the, the FA Cup has pretty much become a tournament for the, the reserve sides of the big clubs. Because if you look at the last 10 seasons, it's the teams in the top six that are winning the FA Cup. It's, it, it's as simple as that. That's why Leicester winning the Premier League was, was almost miraculous. That will never happen again. And I'm amazed that it did in 2016. But it's a tournament that, that used to mean so... I mean, so many of my memories... I, I, I remember... The, the match that made John Motson famous as a commentator, the first game he commentated properly was Hereford beating Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just these amazing scenes of thousands of Herefordshire kids all wearing parkers with their hoods up, all running on the pitch at the end after they'd beaten one of the best teams. In the, and it just won't happen anymore. And I think it's a great shame that the FA have 
have done that to their own tournament. Something I'm interested to talk to you about, you've watched your team in the Premier League a few times at different spells. What mm. was Simon Jordan's reign at the club like? Because he's just such an incredibly big personality. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he is. Um, it's a tricky one, Callum, because he and I don't get on. Uh, we never really did. When... When he first took over the club, there was a, a rival bid from a, a, a chap called Mr. Lim. Uh, and Steve Koppel was behind the rival bid. And uh, Steve Koppel asked me to sort of do some PR stuff for it. And uh, Simon Jordan, the first time Simon Jordan met me, he referred to me as Steve Koppel's bitch, basically. And um, he is he's a fascinating, charismatic man. There's no denying that he's... His reign at Palace ended in near disaster. He's a man of principle, he thinks, and I think too, but sometimes his principle gets in the way. I mean, famously, at Palace, one of the, we, yeah, we never stayed. This, this time, we're in, our, coming up, we're in our seventh season in the Premier League. Before that, we never lasted more than one season in the Premier League at any time. And there was one time under Simon Jordan's run, we were, we were signing Tim Cahill. Uh, and... Simon Jordan, the, the transfer fell through because he wouldn't uh, pay the agent's fee. And this is a matter of record. There's nothing to worry about here, Callum. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't pay the agent's fee. And we missed out on Tim Cahill. And he went to Everton and he scored goal after goal from midfield. And arguably, he, he could have been the player that, that kept us up. They were interested the feeling. And it's nothing to do with Simon Jordan, to be perfectly honest. It was all to do with the fact that Promotion always seemed to take us by surprise. You never really got the feeling that if we stayed up, we'd stay up longer. I mean, this is the first time, to be perfectly honest, when we got promoted via the playoffs in 2013, it was brilliant. I mean, what, what a great day that was as well. But we were still on the train on the way home when we'd, when we'd worked out we'd probably go straight back down. And it was, it, was, it was amazing that we stayed up that season. And then, to be honest, we didn't think we'd stay up for a second season. And it, it, it took four or five seasons for us to, to sort of grow roots, if you like, in the Premier League and to start to feel that we might be on the way to becoming an established club. Before that, we always we always looked like a championship club. Simon Jordan, for all his success selling mobile phones, never really had the money to to, to spend on the sort of players that we needed to, to keep us up, to be honest. He was also a very volatile character, so uh, that was the start of my time at Match of the Day too. So, and I was I used to get quite fed up that I would go to clubs and just hear stories from other clubs' press secretaries and other clubs' chairmen about how rude Simon Jordan could be and how patronising and arrogant. And I, I don't think I think there were times when he didn't fully reflect what I the values of of my club. And I'm, I know that people at the club are not happy now that he. he he spends a lot of time in talk sport, basically criticising Steve Parrish, which, yes. which, which for us is un, is unfortunate. I know Steve, uh, and whatever you think about Steve Parrish, he saved the club, and he's done things for Palace that Simon Jordan never did. And I think it's unfortunate that Simon is still sniping from the sidelines because a lot of what Simon Jordan has to say about football in general, I agree with. It's just that I get slightly agitated by what he says about Palace, but that's partly personal. That's partly because I. I I'd much prefer the company of Steve Parrish than I would have done Steve, Simon Jordan, I think. Absolutely. And in terms of Steve Parrish, actually, you've, you've highlighted what I actually wanted to talk to you about there. 
Simon Jolton and a few others in the media criticised Steve Parrish quite a lot, but as you say, he did save the club. And and what from from your understanding, what's Steve Parrish like as an owner? Because I personally find it awkward when you get this impression that oh, he doesn't care, he doesn't care. He's at every oh. game, as far as I can see. I, 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 anybody who thinks Steve Parrish doesn't care about Crystal Palace Football Club is is utterly, utterly wrong. He's a he's a Palace fan. He's from the area. Uh, he grew up, his, his dad was a local Labour councillor, his mum was a, a, a primary school teacher who was active in, in Labour politics. Uh, Steve Browett, who was the, one of the co-owners who helped buy the club with him, is a very wealthy man. He owns a, a, a wine merchant company, but his politics are to the left. He's another one who was born and brought up as a Palace fan. These are guys that loved the club. And when they first took the club over, and we were an hour from going out of business, we would we would we had already had discussions about Phoenix clubs and stuff like that. And then Steve Parrish, Steve Brown, and the other two bought the club and were honest enough to admit that they'd spent all their money on buying the club. They were very open and very honest about what they could do financially, which is why we thought we would we would go down because they simply didn't have the money left to invest in in big players. But what those two do for for the club and the community is is brilliant. And if, even now. In these difficult times, when when Steve Parrish is one of the first uh, club owners to sign up to paying all staff the the full London living wage, and that included uh, gig economy staff, that included the kids who come in on a Saturday to sell the beer and the burgers, he committed to paying them fully. When this started, I mean, when the COVID thing started, Steve Parrish identified from the season ticket fan base, he identified every fan over the age of 70 and the club got in touch with them individually to ask if they were, if they were fine, if they needed anything, if they needed people to talk to, if they needed shopping left at the door. He's, a, he's, a, he's an owner who's very passionate about where the club fits into the community. I'm a trustee of, of Palace for Life, the Palace Foundation. And again, he's been so committed to us and he's so committed to help the community to, to get through this. And yes, he's a, there are things I disagree with him about. I disagree about his, his views on Brexit, for example. And then he's a, he's a businessman. And sometimes he has to make business decisions on behalf of Crystal Palace that you might not agree with in terms of transfer fees, etc. There's no doubt that, and, and he'll admit in this himself, that just before and after the Pardew years, and this is not a criticism of, of Pardew, that we started to sign players like Kabai, on wages that we would previously not dream of paying. So, you know, suddenly people like him and Benteke were coming in on big, big wages. And then other players like Wilf Zahar were saying, well, I want in on the big... So I think there is an element that in the last couple of years we've been recovering from that. And, and Steve is one of the club chairmen who take the financial fair play rules very seriously. But everything he does, he does with the interest of Crystal Palace uh, at heart. There's no doubt about that. And... He got the Americans involved for the right reasons. It's not necessarily been a massive success because you know, American sport owners behave in different ways. They don't really see why they should communicate with fans in the way that maybe homegrown club owners would do. So we're not entirely sure how much money they've put in and how much money they would take out if they were to, to leave. And that's a, a worry. But where, compared to where we were, you know, when we were an hour away from disappearing... We're now an established Premier League club whose finances, and I know this from Kieran McGuire in Price of Football, and Kieran as a, would, would love to be able to tell me that Palace <laughs> were in trouble, but I, I, know, I, I know, sorry, that was childish. I know, 
I know from him that Palace's finances are in, in, in good shape. So even if we were to get relegated this season or whatever happens this season or the season after, our finances are such that in previous years, relegation was a disaster and now it'd just be a disappointment. I want to talk to you about more big characters from Palace's past. Yeah. Recent past, Neil Warnock and Ian Holloway, two huh. different characters in terms of managers, but two successful Palace managers in their own right. Neil Warnock's an interesting one because he's one of those it, it's like Diego Costa or Mark Hughes you moan about them constantly but you really want them at your club and, and we saw a different Neil Warnock at, at Palace and there were, there were issues around him leaving the club when we went into administration but I love the fact that suddenly this bloke that we would boo every time he came to Palace was with an away team I love the fact howling around the, the touchline on our behalf. I love the fact that he was taking issue with referees and assistant refs on our behalf. It's a very different approach to Roy's, but I, I enjoyed it. It's the same with Tony Pulis. Tony Pulis would literally talk the Palace team for a game, and I love to see that. I'm old-fashioned enough to like to see that, that passion. Roy Hodgson, I've had discussions with Roy Hodgson about this, and he thinks players aren't bothered. Players want to see a calm personality on the touch. So he thinks all the work should be done by Friday afternoon and that you shouldn't have to shout and holler. But I'd like to see some visible passion. Ian Holloway was the same. Ian Holloway, I don't know whether Ian Holloway meant it or not, but he was a comic genius. Some of the things that Ian Holloway would say after games were just incredible. But I would meet these people at club dues and I would host a lot of the player of the year dues and stuff. And they were always, they're always wary of people like me. You'll find that a lot with, with people who have grown up in football. They're, they're wary of, of outsiders to an extent, the same way comedians are really. If you're in a, a dressing room full of comedians and a muggle comes in, a civilian comes in, everyone goes a bit quiet. And then when they go away, we get back to talking about whatever it was we were talking about. It's the same with, with them. It's like, and also I think people like Ian Holloway and Neil Warnock, they think that people like me are just going to take the piss. I think sometimes they don't realise that what our passion is. And, and the trouble is that sometimes our default setting is to take the piss and during play of the year dues, you might get laughed. It's like, for example, at one player of the year, do it's a season, I think it's 2015-16, when we were one of the few clubs that lost to, to Aston Villa, basically. And we lost at Villa Park because Wayne Hennessy managed to nutmeg himself. Right? Now, that takes, that takes a lot of doing. Right? He, he, uh, he dropped the ball and managed to backheel it for his own legs, which takes a lot of doing. So... Yeah, and I said when they asked me to do the player of the year, I said, I can't not mention the fact that Wayne Hennessy nutmegged himself. And of course, they got a massive laugh, except for Wayne Hennessy, whoever the manager was at the time. But they were, they were fascinating. They really people like Warnock, Holloway, Mick McCarthy as well, Sam Allardyce to an extent, but maybe not so much. So there's a level of manager who are fantastic in the championship. They've got the championship sorted, but not, not quite able to cut it so easily in, in the Premier League. They're, I think partly to do with the way in championship teams, they're more likely to have homegrown players. And homegrown players are more used to being communicated with by shouting, if you know what I mean. Like They maybe have more difficulty communicating with, with foreign players. I don't know. But uh, I was quite relieved with Warnock went because it was disconcerting to have a period of time when you actually quite took to him and you, and you were supporting one of his teams. It was, um, it was strange, but they were the right managers. For, I think one thing that the, the appointment of Frank De Boer proved, and I was really excited by Palace 
point in front of the ball. I really was genuinely excited by it. I thought this was a sign of ambition. I thought this was brilliant. It turned out that neither side had really done due diligence. Frank obviously hadn't checked on a map where Thornton Heath was or what it looked like. I, I don't think he fully, you know, from, from people I know in the club, I don't think he fully understood. I think when he was first shown the training ground, which is now magnificent, but at the time wasn't was pretty much a park. I think he thought it was a practical joke. And he tried to get us playing the sort of football that our players simply couldn't do. We, we, we didn't have the technical players to do that. And I think what it proved is that a club like Palace needs to recognise its community, its fan base. And the, the, the managers that flourish at Palace are people like Roy Hodgson, who's from just down the road, the people like Tony Pulis, the people like Neil Warnock, the people like Ian Holloway, who are rough, not rough and ready, but they're more working class, if you like. They're more down to earth. They're not managers that are going to try and get players to do anything they they can't do. And and Sam Allardyce brought in some players really quickly. And in the last couple of, or last six games of the season, we played some really, really good football. But for the first six or eight games, and the same with Tony Pulis, we played terrible football, but we all realised that was the sort of football we had to play. We had to stop losing. And then if that meant ceding possession of the ball to the other team, that was brilliant. I remember. Um, Keith Millen, after one game, Palace had won. Uh, and Keith Millen, who was the assistant manager, has been under many managers, but he was Tony Pulis' assistant manager. And Keith came on and did our, our five-year plan podcast. And he was brilliant. It's very funny. And the first thing I said to him was that we had, I said, probably not need to be win, but we had 36% possession. That's brilliant. He went, no. He said, Tony, Tony did his nut. Tony was really unhappy. He said, what? We don't need 36%. Of so what, we can't do anything with the ball. What we need to do is, is win the ball, get it to Wilf as quickly as possible. So that was a really interesting insight. But, of course, those, those, those managers had to play the boring football, had to grind out results. And then when they did, actually, they were, all of them were quite capable. Some of the best football we played for a long time was under Sam Allardyce, I have to say. It, it was, I wouldn't even call it direct. It was just one pass, two passes, and, and we were in. It was, it was good to watch. And again, all of them realised that Palace fans like like wingers. And the thing that Warnock did, and I realise this has become a very long answer, I'm sorry, but the thing that Warnock the thing that Warnock understood <coughs> brilliantly more than any others, that I get slightly frustrated. We've seen Aaron Wampasaka come through recently at Palace, one of the best young players I've seen at Palace for a long time. Obviously we've seen Wilf come through a, a brilliant joy to watch footballer. But for, for a club that's famous for its academy we see so few young players given a chance. And you talk to managers about it and they all say, we can't take the risk. If you're trying to stay in the Premier League, if you're in a relegation scrap, the last thing you can do is throw in a kid who's only used to under-23 football. Because all of them, Steve Parrish wants to get back to reserve team football where young players get a chance to actually play against older players. Because under-23 football is pretty much a non-contact sport. But Warnock was the one manager who was, uh, was happy to play young players because he said the fans will never have a go at me if I play the kids and they'll never have a go at the kids. You know, if you've got two or three youngsters who are from Croydon thrown into the team, none of the Palace fans are going to have a go at them. It's as simple as that. And, and Warnock understood that. And it was interesting that a manager who you would consider to be very conservative was actually one who was quite radical when it came to playing young players. Something I'm desperate to ask you about is Selhurst Park and the atmosphere. It's, for me, one of the best atmospheres in the country when you watch it on telly. What's it like when you're actually there? I, it's, 
it's hard to explain, really. It's 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 interesting that the last couple of seasons, within three seconds of kickoff, the away fans will be singing, "Where's your famous atmosphere?" And and the thing is, the more established we become in the Premier League, the less we need the atmosphere, if you know what I mean. But it's still there when we need it. It's still there when we play the big teams. But it's it's understandable that the, the atmosphere. If you're kicking off against Burnley at 12 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, the atmosphere is going to be not as raucous as it might be. But certainly for the first four seasons in the Premier League, I've never known anything like it, especially evening games. It was just amazing. And it's it's really strange because I grew up, when I grew up at Palace, we had two big open ends. And you can't, it's hard to get an atmosphere going when you've got two big open ends, which is why I loved away games so much more because we had we always had a massive away turnout. And it's every other team had a covered end, so you always got the noise. But now we've got four covered ends, the passion and the intensity, and it, it's just, it's like trying to explain a colour. It's very hard to explain an atmosphere, a noise, but there, there was one game against Chelsea when John Terry scored an own goal. And the, 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 the last time, it, the place was shaking. I mean, it was, it was literally... We carried that team through games, and, and it's, you know, there were times when... And it's not a big ground. It only holds 24,000. So take out the away fans, there's only 21,000 of us. But stewards were clever enough not to try and make 21,000 people sit down. And, and when we're all on our feet and when we're getting behind the team, the, the night of, of Cristian Ball, the night we came back from 3-0 down against <laughs> Liverpool, was just, it was just astonishing. And of course, of course the atmosphere at Anfield is amazing. Of course the atmosphere at other grounds is amazing. But the intensity, the the pride, the passion, uh, and it, again, it was that identity thing. It's uh, yeah, we're a nondescript part of South London, but everyone knew who we was, and, and I was. We all were. We were. We were so proud that the world was talking. About. We had, we had news. We had a French TV news crew who got in touch with our podcast to talk to us about the atmosphere. We had journalists from Germany who came to games with us because for for two or three seasons the atmosphere was incredible, and, and it. It was, and it's. It was. I mean, it's something we always had bubbling under, but, and it comes back every now and again, not as often as it as it did. But they were amazing times. They were the sense of pride. Only, I feel sorry for people who don't like football, Callum. I mean, this what we're going through now is what their life is like forever. They just don't have. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I, 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 it's hard to explain to a non-football fan what it's like. And I like other stuff. I love the theatre. I love art. I love literature. I love comedy. I love horse racing. I love cricket, but to be in the in the middle of a, a of twenty thousand people, all wearing the same colours as you, most of them from the same area as you, getting behind a team that aren't the best in the world, it's it's an amazing feeling, and there's no doubt that the team responded to it. There's no doubt, and you had people like Julian Speroni, who came from Argentina via Dundee, who just couldn't stop talking about Palace fans and wouldn't do enough to Palace fans. And it's, that's, it's, it was, it was remarkable. It, it's, it's, but, it, but those two or three seasons, it was astonishing to be part of. It really was. In terms of modern football, has your opinion changed on the game and, and your attitude towards the Premier League as the money continues to pour in and pour in? <laughs> that's a very good question, actually, Callum. It, it's strange. Every time... Premier League, I would Dan, Mickey Mouse, money-making league. Who wants to be in that? I want to be where the proper teams are. But the longer we're in it, the longer I want to stay in it, to be perfectly honest. The, the idea of going back to the Championship doesn't appeal. 
not just financially, but just because there's no denying there is a glamour in in the Premier League. You are seeing the best players, you are seeing the best clubs, you are getting wall to wall coverage from Sky, BT Sport, BBC. But there's no doubt that as each season goes by, and I predict that the bubble will burst, the bubble gets bigger. And and through doing the Price of Football podcast, particularly with Kieran, when you learn how imbalanced it is, when you learn how much money is going into the Premier League, the the fact that a team like Berry was able to go bust, even though Bill Kenwright at Everton, even though he he offered to bail Berry out, but was not allowed to because of stupid EFL regulations that, that that stopped people being involved in that. The fact that there is so much money in the game that a team like Berry was allowed to go out of business is is shameful. And I know it's a business, and I know businesses go to the wall, but it's absolutely shameful that a football club that that was allowed to happen with with the result and effect not only on the the morale of the fans but on the the economy of the community. That should never have happened. And I, I, I can't see an end to it. And I, I, even this, I don't think will end to it. I think there'll be such an appetite for football when all this is over that the Premier League will be able to name their own price for broadcasting rights, and it's it's going to get it's going to get worse. And it needs it, it needs to change. It needs to be a fairer distribution. I don't know. It sounds hopelessly old-fashioned, but it needs to be a fairer distribution of, of money from the Premier League to the rest of football. Absolutely, I would agree. Um, I think the amount of money coming in is just. In Scotland, you know, we don't have a lot of money in our game. Um, Celtic and Rangers have a lot of money. The Edinburgh clubs, Aberdeen at a push. But there's not a lot of money in it. But what we do have is passion. And and we have a a lot of fans who go to the games for the love of their club. Not because there's no real urge from people to travel from all over the world to come and watch Dundee. For instance, they go for the love of the club. Yeah, well, you know that's really interesting, Callum, because we had Neil Doncaster, who's the boss of Scottish football, on Price of Football recently, and he was very open and very honest about Scottish football. But, but that passion was something he was he was very keen to emphasise, and he was very keen to to say that one of the reasons they didn't want VAR in Scotland, for example, was they wanted Scottish football to be different to English football. Um, he wanted to sell the passion. He wanted to sell almost the Scottish football as what English football fans would like English football to be. And I, I know that I'm hopelessly romantic about football, and I know that it is a business, and I know that I'm naive, but there is a certain romance about it, and, and it's, it's just wrong that clubs... The, the Premier League is still part of the pyramid. I think a duty, and I think for the most part, Premier League clubs have stepped up to the, the plate really well in the current crisis, some less so, but I think most Premier League clubs are do realise how important they are in the community. The Premier League and Premier League clubs have fantastic community schemes. But having said that, the, the imbalance is wrong. And it, what it creates is a desperation amongst championship teams to get in to the Premier League. And the championship teams, the championship is a basket case when it comes to finances because you've got every single club in the championship is, is in debt because they're spending money they haven't got to try to get into the Premier League. And if they don't get into the Premier League, they're just creating themselves problems for years to come, and then teams get into the Premier League and they, they hawk money they haven't got. They, they spend the money they haven't got yet on, on players and contracts. So if they do get relegated, they cause themselves so much so many problems. So we, we need to somehow rein it in. I don't know how we do that, but somehow we need to make the Premier League far more part of the pyramid than it, than it, than it is now. And having said that, like I said, as a hypocrite, I, I want Palace to stay in it for a long, long time. But I do think all Palace, and, and to come back to our conversation about Steve Parrish, 
he knows that as well because he knows eventually there's there are probably only teams in the Premier League now that won't be in the Championship at some stage in the next decade, and and Palace are one of them. So the the gulf between the Premier League and the rest of football needs to be to be bridged really for the for the sake of the rest of football. In terms of the bubble bursting, you've mentioned that. Is that something you think could happen in the next decade or so, or do you think the the, the bubble will get bigger and bigger? As I, I I thought so. I've been predicting quite confidently for some years that the bubble will burst. Um, I, I probably don't think it will now. And I've learned so much from doing the Price of Football podcast with Kieran Maguire. I've learned so much about... And he's as romantic about football as I am. He supports the wrong team, unfortunately, but... He's got the same romance, but he's also got the knowledge about finance. He's got the knowledge about how football works, about broadcasting rights, how broadcasting can. And he's he's fairly convinced that 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 football that the bubbles are just going to get bigger. And we saw from Amazon's point of view, their their two weekends of football were a huge success. Amazon have probably got enough money, or they have got enough money to buy and sell both BT Sports and Sky. So I think. With Amazon entering as major players in the broadcasting market, and they can afford everything basically. And I, I, I can't see any end to it. To be perfectly honest, I think there will be. I think the only it will end eventually, and and at the end will probably come via Europe when UEFA realise that you simply can't have every team in Europe in some sort of competition. I mean this this new uh, Euro League, the, the the third European tournament that they were due to start next year. It's just ludicrous. Eventually, even the broadcasters will say, look, we, we don't need football every night. We don't need our Albanian second division teams just so we've got something to show on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. So it, it, it might be that Europe over, over gets overgreed, but I, at the moment, to be perfectly honest, my predictions have changed. I, I don't think there's any sign of the football bubble financially bursting at all. And, and that includes transfer fees, that includes wages. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the fuss when Trevor Francis became the first £1 million player in 1979. And now we talk about 50, 60 million quid as though it's nothing. And it's, it's <laughs> strange. We, we accept football as wages. And, it's, and football's still a working class sport at heart, which is why we talk about footballers getting a weekly wage. We say so-and-so gets £100,000 a week. And then we don't turn a hair at the fact that someone's getting £100,000 a week. And, it's, and I, I, I don't think fans find that astonishing as much. What fans really resent, I think, is the money that footballers doesn't go to players, essentially, and doesn't go to, to fans. Yeah. Well, I think every single penny that a football club pays to an agent, I think, is resented by, by most fans. Um, but I, I don't think fans resent players getting big wages, and I think if, it, if that's what it takes, to, you know, if, it, if we have to, to pay what Wolf Sahar wants to keep Wolf Sahar at the club, most Palace fans would say, yeah, pay it, we need him. Oh, absolutely. I think he's a perfect example to use as well. And I want to talk to you now about your comedy. Um, I grew up watching you on Match of the Day 2, not to make you feel old. but um, <laughs> That's the most depressing thing I've heard for years. <laughs> it's, uh, one of, that was, that's one of my best memories growing up watching Match of the Day 2, yeah. Too Good, Too Bad, you travelling up and down the country. Yeah, yeah. Before we come to Match of the Day, in terms of your stand-up comedy, how did you get involved in comedy and was it always a passion of yours? No, not at all. Um... It, it wasn't. There was no element of showbiz in my family at all. I'm from a large Irish family, and there's a lot of joke tellers. But no, I, I I grew up as you as you know in in South London. I went to an ordinary school. I was lucky enough to go to a, a Catholic grammar school, but I I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I 
I went to college to study archaeology, but was thrown out after six weeks. I had no ambitions to be anything remotely theatrical. Um, I thought I was funny. I was always quite funny, and I liked watching comedy on. So I loved I loved Dave Allen, for example. I really loved Dave Allen, mainly because it, it made my dad laugh and it made my mum cross herself. She was like a, a windmill crossing <laughs> herself so much. But um, but we used to start to go and. But sort of when when punk ended, alternative comedy was sort of coming along around sort of seventy nine, eighty, and, and me and my mates used to go and see comedy in local pubs, and I was the one that always said, "This is this is terrible. This why are we laughing at this?" And and in in the end, to shut me up, they organised an open spot for me at a local comedy club, which I I had to do out of bravado, and it it wasn't a disaster, and I because I knew I was only going to do it once, I wasn't nervous about it, but they asked me back to do it again. And then they asked me to do 10 minutes. And then suddenly, two years later, I suddenly found myself in love with this brilliant, brilliant art form. And I had a, I had a good job in the NHS at the time, and I had to make a decision, you know, do I go full-time? And I, I just, it was, in those days, it was much more underground than it was now. That makes it sound more cool and trendy than it was. But it, people didn't really know about it. So it felt like a secret, and it felt exciting. And... I just fell in love with it, and I, I, I then started going to the Edinburgh Festival. I've only missed two Edinburgh Festivals since 1987, and it's and it's 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 hard to explain. It's I, I once I I've met a lot of footballers. I I I asked Gary Lineker once to explain how it felt to score an important goal in front of thirty thousand people, and he he said I can't, and, and he said to me, "How does it feel to get a laugh?" in front of 3,000 people. And, I, and in the same way, I, I couldn't explain it. It's one of those things that you, you can only really explain it to to other comedians. And, you know, I'm, I met my wife because um, she was the stage manager at the comedy store. Um, the guy who ran the comedy store, God rest his soul, who's also from uh, Glasgow, he's my son's godfather. My son is a really good stand-up comedian now, Ed Knight. Um, so we're, we're a family that's comedy's been so much a part of my life and it and even now when i i don't do that many live gigs when people say to me what do you do for a living i always say comedian because that's what i think i am yeah i know i'm a writer and a broadcaster and all that but it, in my mind i'm a comedian and i, I always will be and it, it's strange i always used to take it as every opportunity i could to get football into it but it's strange when you're talking about football unless you're talking to a real football audience because you find yourself having to explain so much context mm. that you you don't do it again. That's why, why why Match of the Day 2 was such a good gig because you didn't have to explain it to anybody. It's the same when you're doing uh, the five-year plan, but it's like people who, who, who are listening and watching this will know football, so you don't have to explain things to them. It's the same when we do the five-year plan Palace podcast. You don't have to say, oh, by the way, this is, you know, Jerry Murphy was this person or, or John Jackson was this person. Everyone knows. You know, you can mention a certain game and everyone knows what game you're talking about. And it was, that's what I loved about Doing match of the day too was was the fact that you you didn't have to explain it to any everyone because everybody watching knew knew what you were talking about. In terms of match of the day too, as I say, your era of match of the day too, and I'm not just saying that because you're on. Is the era I look back most fondly on it reminds me of just happy memories growing up yeah. with, with football and watching you go up and down the country. As I say, it was just a joy. I really loved those films that were made. Yeah. For you being a Palace fan, what was it like experiencing all the other football stadia that you did and the different fans? Well, that's, 
it was, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you say that, Callum, because it, it's brilliant that even now, and it, and it came to an end, I did 10 seasons of it, and it came to an end partly because we there's only so many coach journeys you can do, but also because BBC Sport moved to Salford, which is a long way from where I live, and it, it kind of, they've never officially told me I'm not doing it, to be to be honest, but there are, I, I'm really pleased that there's a whole generation of, of football fans who, who remember it so well, who remember um, Adrian Charles in particular hosting, and, and the fact that it was deliberately slightly more light-hearted than the, the Saturday evening programme. And I know there was a time when Gary wanted to sort of introduce some more light-hearted stuff on Saturday evenings. And they said, no, because you have to be the grown-up, basically. You have to be the sort of the adult programme. And then Match of the Day 2 can be the slightly naughty kid. But I loved it. It was really interesting going to grounds that I'd been to as a Palace fan and now was was back as a, as a neutral. And it, it helped that people knew I was a football fan. They knew I was a genuine fan. It helped that Palace, for the most, they weren't. There was no, that sort of competitive edge wasn't there, and it helped that Palace weren't a glamorous club because they. I think if I'd been an Arsenal fan or a Man U fan, it would have been slightly more difficult. But fans were comfortable with me from the start because they knew that I supported a team that wasn't successful. So they knew that if I was teasing them or taking the piss out of them. It came from a good place, and they'd, they'd have every opportunity to to come back to me. So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have a go at a Wolves fan for them being in trouble back then because they would come back and have it. But as a as a kid, I remember the first time I was at the side of a pitch with a camera crew on match of the day. As a kid, I I used to, Saturday nights and then Sunday afternoons. We you know everyone has their regional program. Sunday afternoons we had the big match. Brian Moore is still a name that brings tears to my eyes. He presented the London football programme. And I just used to remember lying there, desperate for it to come on, twiddling here. And then the, 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 to find myself at the side of a pitch, literally yards from the players as they came out, knowing that it was going to be on match of the day that night, was just the most surreal, exciting experience. And the insight that I got... The, the, the people I got to meet, the places I got to go inside the clubs. And what what fascinated me, A, is the, the fact that, of course, you meet fans who think about their club the same way you think about theirs. It never occurred to me that Reading fans would be as passionate about Reading as, as Palace fans are about them. But then, of course, you meet these people, and they absolutely are. And, and you meet people from all walks of life, and it's it's just, it was just fascinating. But the most interesting thing was that, was learning that on, on occasions, you were lucky enough to be allowed into dressing rooms before games. Most clubs were a bit, they weren't that keen on you doing that. But three or four times, you got into a dressing room and you're in a dressing room with, with Premier League players 10 minutes before kickoff. And you realise that despite all the money in the game, football, even at its highest level, is exactly the same as it is when you're playing Sunday football. That when you get beyond it, when you get in a dressing room, you've just got... 15 excited young men, you've got loud music, you've got the same smell of, of liniment, you've got the same smell of, same sound of studs clattering, you've got the same swearing. And it, it's fascinating to learn that at the, at the bottom of all this multi-million pounds global industry are two teams playing football. And that was a really good lesson. And it was just, it was a joy. I wish I'd taken more notice. I wish I'd made a record of all the, the, the trips that I made because... I did 110, and even now people will come up to me and say, oh, oh, I love that one you did at Bolton, and I have to go, oh, yeah, hmm. was that the pies? I don't know. But, and, it's, it's, and some of them stick out in memory more than others. The one 
Sylvester Stallone at Everton was oh, it's just <laughs> it was just astonishing. And the worst the worst bit about that is that when my boss, the editor, was also a Palace fan, said, "Look, we're going to send you to to Everton because Sylvester Stallone's going to be there." And I was like, "Really? He's he's a bit he's a bit yesterday's man." And he's Sylvester Stallone. It's like I've never seen anything like it. The place it was just mayhem when when they announced that he was there. The Rocky theme started. Oh my god! And and then Bill Kenwright, who was Everton chairman. Did me a huge favour because there were like 45, 50 journalists waiting to to meet Sylvester, and everyone had a minute, one minute allocated, so you had time to ask one question. And then this guy came out of the crowd and said, "Which one of you is Kevin Day?" And I put my hand up, and I got taken into a room with Sylvester because Bill Kenwright had told Sylvester the load that Match of the Day Two was a working class football program, and Sylvester wanted to talk to the working class football guy. And I got this exclusive eight-minute interview with Sylvester Stallone. And it's just like, you're standing there going, I'm talking to Rocky. It's, it's just like, I'm, you know what I mean? It's just like, I'm talking to Rocky while, the, while the, the Rocky theme tune is blaring out outside. And then we were lucky enough to get, it was my camera who got, because Rocky uh, Sylvester was given his first Bovril. Uh, he was in the director's box and I wasn't far behind him. My camera crew that spotted that he'd been given this Bovril. And... It was obviously very hot because Rocky <laughs> took a swig of Bovril and it was too much for him and he, he pulled his terrible face and spat it out. So we we got that. And also, brilliantly, because Adrian Charles was hosting, so I got to finish the piece by going, Adrian! <laughs> so was, um, that was, I mean, so one of those stands, I remember going to Portsmouth to do a thing about Harry Redknapp when this group of Portsmouth fans wouldn't say Harry Redknapp's name. So they kept referring to him as Jamie's dad or Sandra's wife or the ex-manager, which is... And that's, I think I think the biggest thing I learned, actually, and I knew it already, but the thing I learned was just how funny and how clever and how articulate football fans are. I always get cross. Football fans are dismissed by a lot of people, even now as as, as idiots, as, as inarticulate working class folks. And they, they're, they're simply not that, you know what I mean? And it was brilliant to travel the, the country meeting these people and learning that football fans were intelligent, passionate, articulate all funny and, you know, and also see the funniest thing in the world was every time I fell asleep on a coach the other team fans would of course drape their scarf around me take a graph and put it up on Twitter that was always a bit annoying but they were I, it was a, it's the best job anybody could ever wish for and with hindsight like I say I wish I'd paid more attention I, I never ever took it for granted but it didn't occur to me that it would end I just wish I'd in a notebook somewhere I'd written down each one just so I could every now and again refresh my memory because because every single one of them was brilliant and just also as well getting to see football closer it was it was a great it was such a good experience and I'm so proud that like you say it's something that you remember with oh, such sorry. fondness you know even though you're only bloody 10 when it happened <laughs> well, as I say it was just that, that era match of the day with Adrian and yourself as I say yeah, yeah. for me growing up that's the era whenever somebody mentions match of the day too it's a good programme now, but I, I always harbour back to, you know yourself, when you, when you get first into football, you mentioned buying oh, magazines. Yeah, that's the era when somebody mentions football, you automatically go back to. And that's why, yeah. for me, as I said to you, when somebody mentions Match of the Day 2, I just picture Adrian Childs on the sofa, the big yeah, yeah. kind of round sofa, and then going to you on, on the journeys. What was yeah. he like to work with? <laughs> Ad, uh, Adrian's great. He's... um. He wasn't always a rave sunshine. No, he's great. He's he's a West he's a West Brom fan. 
I always find my my in-laws are from the West Midlands and they, they can be of quite a gloomy disposition. But he was, um, Adrian was great. He was uh, very, very passionate about football. Sometimes possibly too passionate for a grown-up. But it's, it's, it, it's, it's like you say, it, it's never quite the same as it is the first couple of years as a kid when you get obsessed with, with football. It's in your memory. It's like I look back now, you know, see the big match revisited and you think, what are those... The football's terrible. The pitches are terrible. Because in, in my mind, everything was green. The football was brilliant. We talk about memory. I don't know but I find that see when people talk about the best players in the world now or the icons at the big clubs in England, for some, I don't know what, what it is. Like people mention Salah and they mention Manny and they mention Rashford. And they're all amazingly good players. But I don't know why. I always just have their back to when I first get into football and remember that oh. those, those players... Oh, of course you do, and I, I do that thing. That's one of the reasons that the Palace podcast works so well, is because two of the guys who do it are in their thirties, and two of us are in their fifties. So, you know, we we get to say to them, ah, yo, it doesn't matter how good Wilf Sahar was; he's never as good as Don Rogers, that sort of thing. And, that, and the nostalgia is such a brilliant part of football. But I agree with you, and and the, the thing with Match Day Two, I got to see some players closer. I I don't think for all the players that we see now, for me. I don't think there are better players in the Premier League now than Dennis Bergkamp or Thierry Henry, to be perfectly honest. And Thierry Henry in particular, and he, he was playing the decade that I was, was doing Match of the Day 2 was when Thierry Henry came into their pop. We did a lot of stuff with Arsenal because Arsenal asked us, me in particular, to cover the move from Highbury to, to the new stadium. So we did a lot of pieces around Arsenal. We got a lot of um, access. So I got to see Arsenal a lot of, Watching Thierry Henry up close, my God. I remember one game against Everton. It was the year they had that the, the centenary kit, the, the maroon kit, when he just, I, even now I can see it in my mind's eye, and he just got the ball on the half turn on the halfway line, glided past the defender, curled a shot in with the, his other foot. And it's just, it's beautiful. But, but as, you know, as we've discussed, football is always better with the rose-tinted glasses on. And, you know, and there are 10-year-olds watching football now in 20 years' time. Well, they won't have it that there's a better player than... Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi or Salah or Mane, you know. That's very true. Um, <clears throat> something I'm interested to ask you about, Kevin, you might not want to discuss it and that's okay, but something that's always intrigued me with comedy is a lot of people refer to comedy as something that it's it's an incredible art form, as you've said, but a lot of the time it's been described as, and I know this myself, having been through a few mental challenges, that the more you're making other people laugh, it's sort of asking how you're feeling is that something that's ever been something you've experienced in comedy and life in general? Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you've been through uh, times like that. I, I, it's always a, a debate, I think, amongst comedians as to whether comedy as an art form attracts people who, are, who suffer from anxiety issues, depression issues, or whether performing on a regular basis brings those issues on. But there, there are very few comics... It, it's a strange way of making a living. It's 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 anxiety followed by adrenaline, followed by you know more anxiety followed by adrenaline. And comedians tend to be people who have a lot of time in their hands to think about things. Comedians tend to be articulate. They tend to explore things. So I I don't think there are many comics who don't have or haven't been touched by by mental health issues. And I think one of the most interesting things about football recently is that. Almost out of nowhere in the last three years, football has become a place where people, men in particular, and we all know that in, in you know, the numbers of men 
young working class men who who are having issues with depression and issues and and the suicide figures for young people are horrifying but suddenly football has become a forum in which that can be discussed and and even three or four years ago i jokingly told you very early on about my mate steve who put his arm around me when he was five and and virtually hasn't done so ever since because he's a bloke we're all blokes and it's like you, you don't for years we don't talk about that sort of stuff it's become a cliche well, hey, fine why wouldn't my just let's just talk about football but now for, and, and football it, it was a long time before football realized that there was an issue with their own there's there are people who say i remember when stan collymore started talking about his depression when john gregory his manager at the time went well how can he be depressed he's, he's playing football he's got loads of money and it, it, there was this lack of understanding but now football's become a forum where men can talk about these issues and there's, there's a guy at palace there's a group of lads called themselves the Homesdale Cravatics, as they used to come to games dressed in quite smart outfits and cravats and whatever. And they started talking about on their 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 Twitter feed, they started talking about mental health issues because one of the guys called Paul um, started talking about his own mental health issues quite openly. And suddenly they started doing this thing called walk and talk where two or three times a season they will walk to a London game. So they, they walk to Arsenal, the away game at Arsenal, and the idea being that, that any anybody, not just me, but any Palace fan or anybody can just join them and start to talk about mental health issues or, or anxiety issues or things that, that are bothering them in general. And Paul came on our, our pod uh, towards the end of last year and talked about his own mental health issues. And then we all talked about our own. And, and suddenly we've got thousands of Palace fans responding to the pod by saying, I thought I was the only one. I'm so pleased that there are people to, that I can talk to about this. I thought it was trivial. I thought I was being stupid. After my mum died a few years back, I found for for a quite a long time, the first two Palace games I went to after my mum died, I couldn't go in. I went. I met my mates in the pub. I went to the ground, and just before I got to, I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. I, did, I couldn't articulate it. Well, and, then, and then even now, for the first couple of seasons, there are times. So my wife had been very ill before my mum died. And after mum died, I found halfway through the second half, I just sit and go, "This is terrible. Why am I here? My mum's died. I would, I would have to leave." And I knew it was depression, and, and there was uh, towards the end of Allardyce's time when we we'd been flirting with with it was a short time, it was a year after my mum died. And my wife was was well. We knew that my wife was was well. The NHS, God bless them, had, had made my wife well. And uh, I went to Palace, and we were playing Hull, and we it wasn't a six pointer, but winning would would mean that Palace had staved off relegation. And we scored. We were two 0 up at half time, and I I just had to go. I went to the toilet cubicle and cried my eyes out for fifteen minutes. And it's just because it's just all this just overwhelmed me, and just the sheer joy and relief of Palace staying up. And I knew that was a metaphor for the joy and relief of my wife still being with us. And it was to do with my mum dying. And, and because of the fact that other football fans and my mates could now talk about mental health issues, I was able to tell them that afterwards when they said to me, where did you go for 20 minutes? I was able to tell them about it. And And whereas five years ago, I wouldn't have even shared that with them. And five years ago, much as they loved me, they would have probably tried to laugh it off or not wanted to get involved. They all understood and we were able to talk about it. And I think football has done a remarkable job and not just mental health there are clubs like stoke for example where they looked at the the figures for heart disease for example in staffordshire and they're horrific and they thought well 
if men won't go to the doctor, perhaps they'll come to their football club. And they started this well-man clinic at, at, at Stoke City where blokes, blokes, for want of a better word, could go and get their blood pressure checked up, could sign up for fitness classes, non-smoking classes. And it's been a tremendous success because fo- football fans look to their club for leadership. And, and this brilliant thing that football clubs have, have and all of them have got schemes now around mental health. And, it, and it's fantastic. And it just shows you that football is so much more than a game. I'm so passionate about how football should be part of its community. I'm so passionate about how football has grown out of working class communities. It's still probably the one working class thing that's left, if, if, if you like. And I still think, I, and, and football clubs are realising that. And I've always said to Steve Parrish, Palace shouldn't be open just one day every fortnight. It, it should be open. Sellers Park should be open for for everybody. There should be clinics there. Should, there should be clubs for old people. There should be luncheon clubs for for lonely people. There's, there's football clubs at the heart of its community, and people will listen to a football club. And that's what that's what happened with issues around mental health. And I'm very proud of football that that's that that's that that's happened. It took too long to happen, and there are still issues around. You know, we haven't got enough black managers and black directors and black physiotherapists. There are still things that football can get right. But they've started to get things a lot more right in recent years than they than they have ever done previously. And I'm really proud of that. No, absolutely. And I have to say, I, I echo what you said in terms of football. I feel that when I was struggling mentally, football was a big thing for me. It's one of my yeah. passions. Obviously, I've got a really good family friend behind me, girlfriend sure. too. But football, as you say, is just so powerful. And I found that I fell out of love with football for maybe four weeks or so when I was really struggling because you kind of just get fed up and part whereas when I started to feel a wee bit better it was just the thing that I I went to to feel better and it was the thing that got me through because as you say you can there's so many avenues there's examples of players that have spoken about it fans groups social media presence social media gets slammed a lot of the time but there can be a lot of good on there especially with football I'm not sure which manager said it it might be Sarri but a manager said recently, quite a high-profile manager, that football is the most important of the least important things, which I thought was a very profound statement. And it sums it up because for me, football, from a very early age, it's been the baseline to my life. With whatever's been going on, with career going well, career going badly, with, with getting married, with having children, with, with everything that happens to me, good or bad, football's always been there to fall back on as an escape, as a release. Football doesn't doesn't judge you in a way, and but for years football was just a kind of neutral thing. But now, football's taking more of a, a role in in the community in life, and I think that description of it as the most the least the most important the least important things is is a brilliant one. And, and I, I, it will be something that as soon as as soon as this is over for me and for a lot of people, I I know that this will be officially over the first time that I walk into the port. I might even go at half eleven. <laughs> just, just, just to prove it. The first time I walk into the Porson's Arms, and the first times we, the first time we leave the Porson's Arms, at exactly two forty-four to go to Palace will be the time we know this is over. And I can't, I really can't wait. Absolutely, I think you're you're spot on in terms of. I know at the moment, obviously, health comes first, but there's just that, as you say, when football's gone. You, you, it's crazy how much you miss it. It's, it's, oh, no, it's no, part no, of your routine. No. And and as you've said earlier on, it's that whole thing of, right, this is how everybody else it doesn't like. It feels yeah. and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Football kind of... Do I mean, it's like, we were able to talk about it not being here and how strange it was, but now that's gone. So we're now just hit with the reality that we've got no... 
football. And we're trying to do podcasts. We're trying to do you know, best Palace team ever or favourite Palace game. But it's it's just not the same. It's just not the same as as meeting up after a victory or a defeat and venting your spleen or expressing your joy. And it's um. Uh... Thanks for listening to another episode of the Football CFB podcast with me, Callum McFadden. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at football underscore CFB. And please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or through Anchor FM um, where I always post my links to the podcasts anyway. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I cannot wait to share my next one with you. Please join me again um, very soon when I'll have another football CFB with. But until next time, take care.